At the World Cup in 2010, many considered France to be a team to be taken seriously. They made it all the way to the finals in the previous World Cup in, in 2006, only to lose in a shootout to Italy 5-3. to three. Well, the French returned in, in 2010 with a, a, a stout team made up of several superstars, and many were predicting them to do well in the tournament. Well, this great team, they made headlines all right in 2010, but unfortunately, it was not for their great performance. In this competition, France's problems began in their game against Uruguay. The game ended in a tie, but shortly after the game, it was reported that star players Nicolas Analka and Frank Ribery refused to pass the ball to another one of the team's superstars, Johan Gorkov, even at times when he was in a position to score due to off-the-field issues that they had with him. Well, in the second game, the situation went from bad to worse for France. Not only did they lose 2 to nothing to Mexico, but during the game, star player Nicolas Analka had a dispute with the head coach, Raymond Dominic, and reportedly cussed him out during the game. When he refused to apologize, Anelka was sent home. Well, if you can believe it, things even got worse for the French the following day when team captain Patrice Avra and team trainer Robert Duverne had a heated dispute that was caught on tape and made national news. Well, shortly after this dispute, the team's managing director, Jean-Louis Valentin, announced his resignation from his position, stating that he was, quote, sickened and disgusted by the actions of the team. And if you're having trouble believing this story already, it gets even worse. Well... The team upset by Anelka being sent home decided that they wanted him back. So the team got together and they did the unthinkable. They went on strike in the middle of the World Cup, refusing to train. Can you believe that? And not only that, but they also gave a statement for their coach to read in a press conference. Well, the French did eventually return to play, only to lose to South Africa 2-1, to one, resulting in the team being eliminated from the competition and being sent home. The French returned home an embarrassment to themselves and to their country. This debacle at the 2010 World Cup reminds us of a timeless truth we see in life and we find all throughout the scriptures. Division is devastating. Division is devastating. It doesn't matter how talented the team, if there is division and discord, failure will soon follow. And listen, believers, the same is true for us and the same is true when it comes to the church. Some of the, the biggest, most fruitful of churches have been ripped apart by division. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 
We are continuing our study through this series in 1 Corinthians entitled Paul's Message to a Messy Church. And this morning we are going to look specifically at verses 18 through 23. And once again, Paul is going to address the issue of division. Now, some of you may be wondering why Paul is, is again revisiting a topic he's already discussed. I mean, let's be honest. If you've been here for more than a few of the sermons in this series, you know that Paul has been somewhat repetitive at the beginning of this book. I mean, he's warned the, the, the Christians at Corinth more than a few times of the dangers of human wisdom, and he tells them more than a few times to stop elevating godly leaders in an ungodly way. And now in this passage, he is going to address once again the dangers of division. Why does he do this? Why does Paul just sound like a broken record in the first half of this book? What's, what's Paul's reasoning for repeating these things over and over again? I believe he does it for emphasis. You know, there are statistics that say for, for something to stick with us, we have to hear it more than a few times. And God, knowing this about us, often has his writers repeat certain key truths over and over again that he wants us to get. And you remember, we've talked about this before, but a key principle in, in Bible study is that when something is said more than a few times in Scripture, not only do we need to, to, to listen to what's being said, but we need to mark it in our Bibles, commit it to memory, and seek to apply it to our lives. That's the reason Paul is reminding us again here of the dangers of division. He wants us to make sure we know how big of a threat it is. Paul wants us to know, just in case it is not yet sunk in with us, that division is devastating. It can divide and destroy God's people. That's why Paul mentions it over and over again, not just in this book, but in almost every book he wrote in the New Testament. In our passage for this morning, Paul's message to this messy church is this. Do away with division. Do away with division. And he gives four steps on how we can do just that. Look at these with me. The first way to do away with division is, number one, have a proper view of yourself. Have a proper view of yourself. Look at verses 18 through 20. Paul says, let no one deceive himself. If any one of you among you thinks, if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. If you remember a few sermons ago, I, I shared with you that, that several of the, the Christians in the church at Corinth had become convinced of the superiority 
of human wisdom and they were taking the beliefs and the practices from this pagan and godless city, the city of Corinth, and they were bringing them into the church and blending them with the, the teachings of the Christian faith in an attempt to improve upon God's message. And to counter this, Paul goes to great lengths in the first three chapters of this book to show the limitations of human wisdom. More than a few times, Paul speaks very critically of these worldly messages and messengers who do not lead one to a right relationship with the living God. Well, in verse 18, Paul brings this up again, but he even gets more personal with his readers. He basically says here, if any one of you thinks that you are wise because you are schooled in the ways of the world, you are deceived. That's what Paul's saying. He says, though you think you're wise, you're truly foolish. And though you think these worldly philosophies will benefit the church, they do nothing but bring division. That's Paul's point. And this should not surprise us, should it? I mean, listen, when, when, whenever you have intellectual pride, division follows, doesn't it? You ever watch uh, news programs when they, when they bring in the experts? Whether it be on a political talk show or a sports talk show, they'll bring in these experts, and, and they normally have a few that are in agreement, and, and they have one or two who are in disagreement with one another, and every one of them thinks that they're the smartest person on the panel, don't they? And everyone wants the last word because they believe their input is the most important. And even those in agreement with one another attempt to one-up one another, don't they? Intellectually proud people can't keep silent. They can't admire others' intelligence and input. They have to talk. They have to criticize. They can't stand to have their opinions challenged. They can't stand to be one up. They have to be right all the time. And Paul says this mentality has no place in the church. He gives in this verse the proper mentality for us to have. The mentality that leads to unity. He says, you want to be wise? Realize you're a fool. Confess your ignorance and turn to God for wisdom, then you will become wise. It's one of the great paradoxes in Scripture. To be wise, we must become a fool. I heard a pastor say recently, this is so good, he said a lot of division in the church could be eliminated if people would see themselves in the proper light as God sees them. We would view human wisdom, our wisdom, the wisdom of the world, as God views it, listen, we will be well on our way to being the type of people and the type of church that God has called us to be. Because how does God view human wisdom? As folly, as foolishness. To further support what Paul has said in verse 18, he leans on two Old Testament passages to support this point. First, he quotes Job chapter 5 verse 13 in verse 19. He says, God catches the wise in their craftiness. Remember in the book of Job, Job endures some of the most severe of human trials, doesn't he? 
He loses his livelihood. He loses his children. He loses his health. And to top matters off, he receives some foolish counsel. This statement quoted by Paul here in, in, verse, in, in verse 19 was spoken from Eliphaz to Job, one of Job's foolish friends. And, and, and the statement that Eliphaz makes is true that, that God catches the wise in their craftiness. The problem with this statement is it's misapplied to Job. So, so Paul takes this statement that is true and he gives it the proper application. He uses this statement to make the point that God knows what is behind the craftiness of man. He knows, he sees through the wisdom of the world. He knows human wisdom has nothing to offer. He knows it's foolish at best. Paul makes a similar point in verse 20 when he quotes Psalm 94, 11. Paul says, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. He's making the point here once again that worldly wisdom is empty. It is. It falls short falls infinitely short. It does not bring true knowledge of the living God and His ways. Therefore, the wisdom of the world and the counsel of the foolish are to be rejected. Believers, when we realize this, that human wisdom falls short in the most crucial of ways, and when we in turn respond to this by turning to God and looking to Him for wisdom and submit ourselves to Him, get this, we will then be on our way to true wisdom. And we'll be guarded against division. That's Paul's point. I love this proverb. I've got it up on the screen here. It's a great proverb. Listen to this. He who knows not and knows not that he knows not is a fool. Avoid him. But he who knows not and knows that he knows not is wise. Teach him. I love that proverb. May the latter be true of us. May the latter be true of us as we gather together as believers, as we enter this place week in and week out, and as we get together as a church and as, as a, a body of believers for the purpose of ministry. Number two, to do away with division in the church, we need to have a proper view of others. Look at verse 21. Paul says, So let no one boast in men. Notice this verse begins with so, or so then, also translated therefore. The rule is when you have a therefore in the text, you have to figure out what the therefore is there for, right? Makes sense. Here Paul is pointing back to what he's just said. He's showing us that what he's just said has, a, has bearing on what he is about to say. He's basically saying here, since human wisdom is fruitless, since the wisdom of the, uh, since wisdom, true wisdom, is only found in God, verse 21, let no one boast in men. As we've discussed already in this series, the Corinthians were followers of men, weren't they? They were. They followed pagan 
philosophers and adopted their beliefs and practices and they also attached themselves to men of faith and elevated these godly men in an ungodly way and these allegiances were bringing division in the church now we can understand why attaching themselves to these pagan philosophers who were who disagreed on everything would cause division in the church right but what about with Paul and Apollos and Peter is there any difference in doctrine between these three individuals? No. But somehow the Corinthians had found a way to divide over people that were in agreement. That's a pretty divisive church, isn't it? These believers at, at, at Corinth, they were creating these differences between the three and they were attaching themselves to each of these individuals based upon these created and manufactured differences. Now, let me say this. There, are, there is a reason for you and, and for me and for others to prefer one teacher and preacher over another. It's true. If you have a faithful and godly individual who knows and, and accurately and effectively preaches and teaches the Word of God, this individual is to be preferred over the individual whose life is spiritually shoddy. It's true. Faithful men of God are to be preferred over someone who is unfaithful, ungodly, and ignorant spiritually. But, but, but that's not the point Paul is making here. That's not the problem with the divisions in Corinth. Paul and Apollos and Peter were all faithful and godly men who were committed to the truth. Paul's point here is, there should not be any division where there is no division. Sounds obvious, doesn't it? There should not be any division where there is no division. Paul wanted them to stop boasting and stop placing their confidence in one over another and being divided over these, over these differences, these created and manufactured differences when each individual were each in agreement with one another. In fact, Paul has made the point several times already, and he makes the point again here in verse 21 that they were not to, to place their, their trust and put their confidence ultimately in any man. Remember earlier in this chapter, Paul tells his readers, we're just servants. He says, I'm just a servant. Apollos is just a servant. Ministers are just servants. And the equivalent of that word servant is a table waiter or a busboy. That's what Paul's saying. We're just spiritual busboys. Apollos is just a, a, a table waiter. And just in the same way as it's ridiculous to, to exalt busboys, we don't do that, do we? We don't erect statues of table waiters. Paul says it's ridiculous to exalt us because that's all we are. We're just the go-betweens. Paul makes the point time and time again that they are to reserve their boasting for the only one who deserves it, the Lord Jesus. Believers, again, the same is to be true of us. If each one of us would attach ourselves ultimately to Christ, reserve our boasting for Him, ultimately place our confidence in Him and follow Him, we will be brought together. 
We will be unified. We will be protected against division. Like Paul tells the, the Ephesians, Christ brings believers together. It's what he does. He, he brings us together. He breaks down, like Paul says in Ephesians, the dividing wall of hostility. That's what Christ does. Listen, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, and your attitudes and your actions do nothing but, but anger and divide God's people, you need to take a second look at whether or not it's Christ you're following. Because what should result from believers faithfully following the Lord Jesus is unity, not division, harmony, not discord. Number three. To do away with the vision, we have to have a proper view of our possessions. Have a proper view of your possessions. You want to eliminate or guard against division? Paul says, this has to be true of you. You have to have a proper view of your possessions. Look at the end of verse 21. Paul says, for all things are yours. Let's stop there for a minute. Did you get that? What does Paul say belong to us? Some things, all things. You're probably thinking to yourself, well, surely he doesn't mean all things. Oh, yeah, well, that's what he said. He said, all things are yours, and he means all things are yours. This is not the only place where this is mentioned. Romans 8, 17, Paul tells us that believers are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Remember the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17, 22? He said, Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given them. What the Father has given Christ, Christ has given us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 15, I have all things. And here again, he says, all things are yours. Paul is showing the Christians at Corinth that they are limiting themselves when they break off into these different factions and groups. How strange would it be for a person to live on the streets with the homeless when he is wealthy? It's pretty strange, right? In the same way, Paul is saying here, it's it's, it's strange, it's ridiculous for, for Christians to get into these little groups and ask for nothing more when everything is theirs. Let's keep reading. Paul says, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's, that's Peter, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. Now, in verse 22, Paul mentions several things here, so let's break these down quickly, okay? First, Paul says, Apollos and Paul and Peter are yours. Like we said already, they, these Corinthians, they were, they were divided. Each of them were in, in different groups, and they were attaching themselves to these men of God, and they were being divided over this affiliation. And Paul gives them a great word here. He says here, you are limiting yourself by attaching yourself to one teacher when you can have all of them. Whether it's Paul and his passion for preaching Christ, 
and Him crucified, whether it's Apollos and his great knowledge of the Old Testament and his gift as an eloquent speaker, or whether it's the warm-hearted and relatable Peter who had the most intimate of relationships with the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry. Paul says, don't separate over these godly and gifted individuals. They all belong to you. Don't restrict yourself to one of them. I know some negative things have come from the internet. There have also been many positives, many great things that have come as, as well. God has, has used that in a, in a mighty way. For example, we now have through our computers and our smartphones, excellent access to excellent preachers and teachers all over the country. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, I can watch John Piper preaching to his congregation one minute and then listen to John MacArthur in another part of the U.S. The other day I, had, I was in my car and I had my smartphone plugged into my radio and I was listening to R.C. Sproul speak to the men of, our, of his church. It's incredible. We have access to all sorts of excellent resources. There are some bad ones out there. You need to practice discernment, but there are some excellent ones. We're just a click away from all sorts of articles and commentaries that are freely given to us online. It's out there for our benefit. It's yours. It's ours. Now let me say this. This should never be uh, considered a substitute for church. Many people have made it that, and like we've said in the past, the scriptures are clear that being affiliated with the local church is a must. In the early church, the believers had no concept of following Christ apart from the context of the local church, and neither should we. But let me also say this. Listen to me when I say this. If this is the only sermon that you're hearing week in and week out, if this is limiting yourself, you are. I would love more than anything for each and every one of you in here to be pouring into the Word of God week in and week out on a daily basis, studying and reading commentaries, doing whatever you can to understand the text so that you can apply it to your lives. I would love more than anything else for you to be out there listening to the, the Timothy Kellers and, and John MacArthur's and John Piper's of the world on a daily basis along with what you are hearing here tell you, I am. As I prepare week in and, and week out, I have teachers teaching me, helping me prepare. If you were to come by my office during the week when I'm doing sermon prep, it looks like a bomb blew up on my desk. I mean, there are books open, papers out everywhere, because I take advantage of the access that I have to gifted scholars and teachers and their insight, and I thank God for them. They're yours as well. Listen, here in the States, I mean, we, you know, we go to Nicaragua because they're lacking in, in these things, but we have no excuse, do we, for not maturing in our knowledge of God. We have no reason not to be growing in godliness because all things are ours. Now, let's see what else we have. Paul says, the world is ours. Do you know the world is yours? What does Paul mean by that? He means what he says. The world is yours. When you walk out of here today, just look at all the stuff that belongs to you. 
Just go out there and look at what's yours. Now, some of you say, well, isn't that in the future? Didn't Jesus say the meek will inherit the earth someday in the future? Yes, that's true, but, but the world is yours now. God has made this world for us. He has. Everything in this world God has made, he's made it for us. Now, I agree that, that one day this is going to be even better. When we're in the presence of the Lord and there's a new earth, when everything is, is right and good and when righteousness and goodness are the norm, but the world is ours today. And we're to take it and we're to, to use it. God's glory and we're to appreciate it and care for it as a gift from Him. In addition to the world, Paul says, life is yours. What kind of life? Well, eternal life, right? For the believer. Abundant life, spiritual life, life with God. Believers. We have eternal life with God. God has made me and you right with himself, and he has given us new godly desires, and he's given us his joy and his peace and his love. This kind of life is ours. Look at the next one. Death is ours. Some of you are saying, who wants that? That's your mentality. You're not looking at death from the proper perspective from the perspective of a believer. You're looking at it as a master and not a servant. Have you ever thought of death as being a servant and not a master? Scripture looks at it this way for the believer. Paul said to die is what? Gain. To die is gain. Why would he say that? Because he knew that death does nothing more for him than just take him to Jesus ushers him into the presence of the Lord. Paul saw it as something to look forward to, not something to fear. Is that anywhere close to your perspective? Do you view death as a servant and not a master? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, O oh death, where is your sting? O oh grave, where is your victory? There is no victory in death for a believer because it does nothing more than bring us into glory. It's a servant. Okay, the world is ours, so is life and death. There's another thing, the present is ours. You say, what in the present? Well, everything. All people, all situations, all events, all experiences in life, all things are beneficial to us. Did you get that? Everything, every situation in life, whether good or bad, can benefit believers. How awesome is that? Paul says in Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good for believers. How many things? All things. Pain and pleasure, sorrow and joy, all things work in our favor. All things can serve us and mature us and make us into more of who God wants us to be. Not only things in the present, but things in the future. That covers just about everything, doesn't it? As we've talked about already, God has something wonderful in store for his people. The Bible tells us time and time again that nothing in this life compares to what God has in store. I love the way the psalmist put it in Psalm 84.10. He says, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Now that statement is more true than what we know at the moment, isn't it? But one day we'll grasp the truth of that verse, won't we? 
So Paul is writing here to let the Christians at Corinth know that they are rich in Christ. He says, everything is yours, therefore you have no reason to be divided about anything. What a great point. Once again, believers, the same is true of us. Everything belongs to us as believers. And and because that is the case, there is no need for division amongst us. So Paul says we can eliminate or guard against division by having this proper perspective on our possessions. The fourth and final step to eliminate division is this. Number four, have a proper view of your possessor. Look at verse 23. Paul says, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Every Christian belongs to Christ. Makes sense, right? And Christ belongs to God. And there is no break in that connection. There is to be no division in that. We all belong to the same Christ who belongs to the one true God, God the Father. And Paul compares our relationship with Christ's relationship to the Father. So, so, so as Christ is on the same page with the Father, get this, we are to be on the same page with Christ and with one another. That's Paul's point. And that's not the only time when this comparison is made, is it? Remember during Jesus' high priestly prayer to his followers in John 17, 11, he prayed, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Believers, we are to be one in the same way that the Father and the Son are one. Just as Christ is on the same page with the Father, we are to be on the same page with Christ and in turn with one another. That is the standard to strive for. So for us to to be all that God has called us to be, for us to be on guard against and, and do away with division, get this, we have to have a proper view of ourselves a proper view of others, a proper view of our possessions and our possessor. Let me end with this. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't have this view of yourself. You don't have this view of others and you don't have this connection with God's people. And the reason why is because you don't have a connection with the Lord Jesus. Let me tell you, that can change this morning. Can. You can have that connection this morning with the Lord Jesus, but I'm telling you, it's going to take humility on your part. Truth is, for you to be at peace with God and for you to join the family of God, listen, this is key. You have to admit your foolishness and your need. Some of you are sitting there thinking, man, that's sounds harsh. No, that's gospel. That's the gospel. For you to be made right with God, you have to admit that up to this point in your life, you have been on a foolish path. You have lived your life on your own apart from God, which which scripture tells us is sinful and foolish and, and deserving of death. You say, that sounds harsh. No, that is the gospel. 
You, have to, you also have to admit that if left to yourself, you would remain lost in this life without a hope in the world. I know that sounds harsh, that's gospel. To be made right with God, you have to admit that you're in need of, of what only God can give, forgiveness of sin and a right standing with Him. And if you're here this morning and you are not trusting in Christ for your salvation, I pray today be the day that allegiances change in this room. I pray that today be the day of your salvation. Would you pray with me?